It's time for some cheap talk. You're listening to Trick Chat. Hello, kitties. It's so good to see you again for the first time. Welcome to a show called Cheap Talk. My name is Ken Mills, and joining me is Matt Porter. Matt Porter. The Matt Porter. The Matt Porter. Give you a little bit of history about this show. This is uh, something that we're looking at as possibly doing full-time or maybe a mini-series, but we're both Cheap Trick fans. We are not Cheap Trick experts, as I'm sure you'll find out. We just really want to do something to bring people's attention to the band and talk about all the Cheap Trick goodness that's out there. So get your bow ties on and join us. So if you're ready, let's go. We We both do... Kiss Podcast. Matt is a co-host with me on a show called Podkist, and Matt has a show called The Kiss Room. That's his solo album, so I guess we're venturing <laughs> on to another solo project here with the Cheap Trick cast. So if you're a big Cheap Trick fan, you're probably wondering, well, why are these Kiss fans talking about Cheap Trick? Well, A, we love them. And I think that at some point, if you were a Kiss fan in the 70s, you almost had to be a Cheap Trick fan by default. They open for them. There's those really cool pictures of Bunny in the uh, Paul Stanley wig type thing and the vest and the, the outfit and all that. We've also heard the stories about how when Kiss's drummer Peter Chris was not doing well one evening, shall we say, that uh, the band asked Bunny if he could perform. And, and, and what did Bunny say, Matt? You know, uh, Howard Stern asked him about that, and he says, could you have done it? He says, with one hand tied behind my back. And, of course, he probably could have because Bunny is the man, and he is the king of the whole wide world. But that's a whole other song. And, uh, to me, the uh, the idea of Kiss and Cheap Trick, when I think back to the 70s, they're almost intertwined. Was it that way for you, Matt? You know what? It was really the same way that I discovered Kiss was the same way that I discovered Cheap Trick. And our neighbors, which were the Deals, which are our longtime friends, um, the, sounds like a band. The deals, right. Could be a band. Well, Brian and Lenny lived next door, and Lenny was a couple years older, and he was the one that really, you know, he had the Kiss albums. That's how we kind of got into Kiss. And this is the way that we really discovered Cheap Trick was in the middle of that summer, he had the Budokan album, and he would take his stereo speakers and put them out the window on their porch and just crank it up. And I can remember hearing it, you know, like coming, you know, this is the first song. On our new album, the song, you know, just came out last week. And we're like, wow, this is great. And of course, you know, and like you said, you, if you were looking through Kiss magazines, chances are you were seeing Cheap Trick as well. Right. And, you know, and it was just the kind of thing. And then, you know, they're singing, they got their Kiss records out. And wow, they must be cool because, you know, they're, they're also listening to Kiss. And, uh, you know, it was just, that was really the same way. So shout out to the Deals, Pergasy, 70s. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's the kind of thing where, uh, that's how we really kind of got into all that was, uh, just by hearing it out his window. And I was one of those guys that blasted out of his window too. <laughs> those were great times. I love the 70s. Let's talk about the 70s. Uh, there's a lot of concepts in the 70s I don't think would have flown as well. Like, for example, if Kiss were starting today, it would take about five minutes for their, someone to get a picture with a cell phone of the band members. You know what I'm saying? It, it, the, the whole mystique and the mystery wouldn't last. You couldn't do it. It's why that will never, ever happen again. 
You know, exactly like why you said is it's, you know, they would be caught within two seconds. And I think the other thing is, and this is maybe it's because of the way the record industry or whatever, but think about it. Kiss was putting out an album or two a year. Industry. Right, well, that's, and, and Cheap Trick the same way. You had every year, you know, 77, 78, 79, 80. Like Sometimes two year, a year. Two a year, and, and even so, even with, with discovering the band around Budokan, meant being able to go back and get this first one and then get, you know, um, In Color and, and you know, and then Heaven Tonight's right out and then Dream Police is out and all those things. So you weren't, like, listening to that one CD over and over and over. It was There was this whole group of songs to discover, and I think that's really where, you know, you have now people are putting out, oh, here's my single. I'm a big deal because I have one song on iTunes. And you go, uh, okay, you know, you'll be gone by tomorrow. Or later today. Later today. Um, now, we should talk a little bit about other music that we love. I, my, my, probably my favorite band of all time is the Beatles. I'm also a Kiss fan, Alice Cooper, The Clash, and, of course, Cheap Trick. That is not the pecking order of love for the bands. It's just a, a smattering of information. One of the things I've always loved about Cheap Trick is that strong Beatle tie-in, whether it's a call-out from a lyric like, you know, where they... They would say something like "Any Time at All," which the Beatles had a song called "Any Time at All" or "Taxman." You know, they would, there was all these little tie-ins, not only lyrically but musically. Uh, for example, Rick might play a part of "Please Please Me" in the uh, in a solo or something like that, and and that was so incredibly cool. Then you take someone like Robin Zander, who's able to put you in that John Lennon frame with his vocals. It's, it's just so amazing. Cheap Trick always had layers and layers of different kinds of things going on. For example, you might have in a song like Gonna Raise Hell where there's something vicious going on or something sinister going on. You might have this beautiful, lush juxtaposition of just the beautiful background vocals and thing. It was almost like having a pretty knife at times. It's the fact that they have also a lot of different flavors. You know, you weren't yeah, getting exactly. tired of them because, and I think it, it goes down to why they've had such a long career. Is you're in the mood for one thing one day, you can listen to one album. Maybe you want the poppier version of Cheap Trick, you go in one direction. You want this heavier version of Cheap Trick, you can go in another direction. And I think that's always been, you know, yeah, the influence is definitely the Beatles, but I think. At the time, there's definitely, especially in these earlier albums, there's definitely a punk influence. Like on the Absolutely. first album, he, you know, he's not even really going for a solo. You know, when you think about a lot of the like bands that were really very inspired by Cheap Trick as a pop band, but when you think about Cheap Trick as almost a punk band, he doesn't have Rick is not going for those showy solos that you know later would come around. You know, in obviously the '80s, and then I think a lot of your Alternative bands certainly were kind of going after that same thing. No time for a solo. Blah 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 blah. Done. And I think that's probably why I think Cheap Trick has lasted as long as they have is because there's something a little different for everybody. And the four personalities were just as dynamic as the 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 guys in the Beatles or the guys in Kiss or anybody else. Cheap Trick made it so that everybody had a strong personality, even though they would hide a lot of their origin story in misinformation. I remember seeing an interview once where uh, they're asking Bunny where he was born, and he said he was born in Venezuela and raised in Chicago. And then they asked Rick where he was from. He said he was raised in, uh, born in Chicago and raised in Venezuela. So, <laughs> you know, you just never got the straight 
answer with these guys, and, and I don't think you still do today, and I think that it's led to them being able to keep some of their private life private in a way. Well, you know, and that's, I think, cheap trick in a way, and maybe it's because I was really just a fan very early. It was one of the few bands. But you knew every member. I think that was something that was kind of unique in a lot of ways. Every member was very distinct, and you knew who was doing what. Where some bands, you know, you didn't really... Can you name the bass player of this band or that band? Oh, but, you Sticks, know, you for example. And I'm sure there's a Sticks fan out there going, Kershaw. Hey, yeah, what are you but, talking uh, about, you know? <laughs> the Panazzo brothers are amazing. But uh, Cheap Trick had that thing that the Beatles and Kiss had where you knew every member of the band, and it was great. And let's let's talk about the concept of Cheap Trick, because it's a very strange one. You'd get their album covers, and on one side there would be Robin and Tom, and on the other side... There'd be Bunny and Rick. So you had your good-looking guys and your misfits. And <laughs> I'm the I'm, I'm definitely on the misfits side. I don't know about you, Matt. We're, yeah. we're probably on those uh, little mopeds on the back of the album, not on the release. So. I'd be on the back cover, right? <laughs> yeah. But it's such a strange, strange idea to have one guy look like a, a lunatic six-year-old serial killer uh, cross between Pee Wee Herman and the greatest guitar player ever. Then you had Bunny, who looks like he could either be selling you tires or insurance. You just never knew what was going on with that. Then you had the, the two cool guys, which I always got the idea that if they were playing characters, which they may or may not have been, but Robin was the younger guy. Like, he was uh, in his suit ready to go to prom or whatever like that. And Tom was like the more sophisticated version of that guy so in my mind i always tried to make sense of the concept and you know i'm probably talking out my bow tie but i always <laughs> uh tried to look at it as rick was the young boy then robin was the uh, suave teen then you had tom who was the sophisticated cool guy and bunny was the older guy who had settled into a position somewhere selling insurance or tires or something it always cracked me up because he'd just be sitting there in some of the promo videos especially for like he's a whore and uh the other one that was done at the night gallery he literally would like roll his eyes did you ever catch that and he had such a laid-back style he's just back there you know with the cigarette (laughs) hanging out of his mouth and uh you know kind of playing just you know it, it was he was never showy and, uh, well, you know, you had I, I obviously. Disagree. I think he was incredibly sure. I mean, the guy played with like three foot drumsticks, so. Well, but not in the, the like. Baseball it, bats almost, you know. Yeah, but not in the like the, like the fact that he always had such a small kit. Oh, know, yeah. So it wasn't one of these guys that was jumping around and making himself the spectacle. I think it was always, right. and it always felt that, you know, he really was just holding it all down. You know, and, and I think it wasn't one of these things, and you don't really have him doing these crazy, crazy kind of drum parts, which I think in a way, if you listen especially to some of the first albums, you know, where the bass is really, you know, obviously Tom Peterson, and then he's going with four and 12 and 30,000 oh, string don't bases. don't get me started. Isn't, <laughs> I, we just have to stop right now and just sigh at the sound of a 16 string bass. My God, as a bass player, I mean, that's like heavenly. That 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 is nirvana. And the sounds and tones he was able to get out of that, plus it was very influential. I mean, you, you hear that in, in uh, King's X down the road, you know what I mean? You hear you hear those same kind of tones, and, and some of those tones he was able to get out of the bass was just absolutely amazing. And there's times you didn't know if it was a guitar or if it was the bass. You know, and I think when you go back and listen to something even like, 
like we were talking about the first album, but I mean, Speak Now or Forever Hold Your Peace starts off with that bass just kind of grinding in there and I think really sets the tone for what the the sound of Cheap Trick. I mean, you know, Rick, for a lot of times, is off playing these almost solo-oriented kind of themes during the song and, and Bunny and Tom are really holding the whole song together. Absolutely, absolutely. You would see these guys in 16 Magazine, and they became the darling of 16 Magazine, just like everybody else seemed to be there for a while. The weird thing is that you listen to their first album, and if you actually listen to the lyrics, you have things like Hello Kitties and Speak Speak Now, Forever Hold Your Peace, and uh, He's a Whore and all these things. And then to see them in 16 Magazine, like, hi, it's, you know, this pop band. And, yeah, but they <laughs> sing about some really weird stuff. And it's one of the reasons that Cheap Trick, the 77 self-titled album, is probably one of my favorite albums is because there's just so much going on there. It's it's just uh, it's one of my favorite albums of all time. How about you, Matt? You know, I I think that's a, a pretty telling thing what you just mentioned about with uh, the different themes of the songs. Discovering them around ten or eleven certainly, and the same thing can be said for me with Kiss was like you know you listen to it for now really almost all your life, mm-hmm. and you discover different things about the songs that you know that a ten or eleven year old maybe wasn't as hip to. I certainly wasn't like a hip 10 or 11 year old but even like you know you're listening to uh you know something like go candy and obviously you know you're singing about a suicide of a friend and things like 10 or 11 you know i i really wasn't hip to that so it was the kind of thing where as you get older and you start to kind of listen to some of the albums that you still have your younger nostalgia for but yet you can discover it again you know with with maybe a new frame of mind or things like that and and you know i think that's a lot of the early cheap trick you know, they were they were going a little heavier with things than, you know, certainly with Kiss, it was pretty much all, you know, you know, the more party and, and sex, and which certainly, you know, at any age, you know, it's never a bad thing, but it's the kind of thing where, uh, you know, you go back and rediscover it. Yeah, this album, the first album was fantastic. Really, those the whole group of early albums, you know, when you uh-huh. think of Heaven Tonight and Dream Police, you know, and, and obviously, like I said, my favorite album pretty much... My favorite Cheap Trick album is Live at Budokan. Well, wait a second, wait a second. Why don't we do this right now? What are your fave top three Cheap Trick albums? You know what? I I really, obviously, Budokan, like I've said a couple times already, that one was what got me turned on to the band. And it really is, I would say, and this might be an interesting topic and certainly something for the listeners to kind of clue in on, if you had to turn somebody on a Cheap Trick, what album would you give them? And I'm going to say right there, I'm going to give them the Live at Budokan album because, in a way, it's almost a cheap trick greatest hits at that point. Right. And it's almost it, the equivalent of giving someone the Kiss a live album. Both exactly. of those albums encapsulate what those bands are about. And, you know, when you think of it, I mean, and certainly, you know, we, we joke about this all the time, when you think about it in terms of side one and side two. Mm-hmm. Side two of At Budokan... I think I don't think you can make a more perfect album side for a cheap trick album. I mean, it's like every song is good, and like I said, I mean, I mean, maybe that's the equivalent of saying, "Oh, I really like uh, you know rock and roll night," but I want you to want me. I think stands up as really that live version is I think one of the finest examples of cheap trick. It's a pop song, and when it comes on the radio, that will always just get cranked way up. It's one that I go to a lot, you know, if, if I'm really kind of in a crappy mood. That second side of that album, those couple songs on Budokan are really, you know, 
have always been uh, some of my favorite. So that certainly is number one. I mean, really one of my all-time favorite records of all time. And and then really, you know, it's a lot of, I would say, Dream Police. And then I really like the newer, like Rockford, I really like. I think that's a real good one. The uh, I think the, the newest stuff that they've been doing, they're returning a little bit more to that, um, you know, more stripped-down rock, mm-hmm. a little less polished. Obviously, in the 80s, you know, you had The Flame was a big hit, and, and that kind of brought a whole new group in. But, you know, if you're thinking of The Flame, you know, look, you know, go back and listen to Manicello or something, and, and I think... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's kind of, yeah, and it's really it's the kind of thing where you know you can get turned on to Cheap Trick a, a bunch of different ways, but then to go back and really find that early stuff, you know, I think like most bands, I mean, and people can say what they want, but most bands, I think the early albums are really where they sound like the the I think the definitive version of the band. It's what they have been practicing for. You know, you work for when you're you know you're going to have a record deal, and here you are, and finally you get there, and you can write all these songs. And, uh, you know, those, those early Cheap Trick albums, I always go back to that. And, you know, uh, Heaven Tonight and certainly Dream Police with the fold-out cover, and it's got every great song. And, uh, you know, it really, uh, those early ones, that, that's what I would say. How about you? Well, I definitely would say the first Cheap Trick album, then Budokan. Then I'm going to throw a weird one at you. It's uh, the Cheap Trick self-titled 97 album. Oh, yeah, good one, yeah. That album just kicks all kind of ass. Uh, and I think that was, like you said, that's where they really, they returned to a more stripped down, and it was a very, I think, more rocking album than they had been doing. And yeah, I would, I would agree that as well. Well, we don't like to dwell on negatives, but if you could pick one album that is your least favorite, which would it be? You know what, I think probably something like Standing on the Edge or or something that... Well, maybe I, for me. I, no, go on. Know, I, I just don't go to that one so much. I mean, it's it's not one like when I'm looking at the stack of CDs, I don't run run to that one maybe as quick as some of the other ones. It's And not that it's a bad album. And I, again, like I said earlier, I think you have all these different flavors of the band, so you're able to um, kind of pick what you're in the mood for. Mm-hmm. But... For, I don't know, that one by by 85, you know, even like The Doctor has some good songs, but maybe, you know, it's not the one that you go, oh, I'm really in the mood for some cheap trick, let me, let's listen to The Doctor, but, uh, you know. I'd have to say Busted for me. Yeah, and that's one where you figure they, they were adding in a lot of fans, you know, certainly had some videos on MTV and things like that, but yeah, that's where they're, they're trying, I think, just have more commercial success and, uh, not yeah, again, not the one you go to when you think, oh man, I really want to listen to a cheap trick album. Okay, fair. Well, let's take a little break right now. So we're going to talk about the 1977 release, Cheap Trick, by the band Cheap Trick. If you're listening to the show, I assume you know that. <laughs> uh, we're going to go with the track listing that the band prefers. This was one of those weird things one of those quirky cheap trick things that I always thought was cool, but they had a side one and a side A, <laughs> which was kind of confusing. Now, let me tell you my earliest memory of this album. My uncle was dating a chick named Karen. She wasn't the cutest girl in the world, but she could flirt like nothing. And I remember one time I was over at her house 
And she... But have you seen her face? You got she had a face that could stop a clock. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but no, she was she was she was cute. She was cute. She just wasn't a a major beauty. You know what I mean? One time she took a pair of her panties. She was doing laundry, and I had I had my cheap trick record and like a Beatle album and a Kiss album. I was over at her house and. I had them like sitting on her counter near the stereo. She was folding her laundry and I went to get something out of the car or something. When I came back, a pair of her lacy panties had been draped across the album. Like the album <laughs> cover was wearing her panties. And I didn't know if I should touch them and move them or what, but she just looked at me and I was very shy because I was a, a, a teen, you know, at that point, but she would flirt with me and make me blush and it just kind of ties in with the album so that's one of the feelings i'll you know whenever i hear this album that's one of the things that popped in my head the other thing that's going to be weird is uh about this album this is ken's personal cheap trick uh history i would get up every morning and listen to two albums before i went to school every morning the same two albums the same way over and over again it was cheap tricks 1977 self-titled album and the monkey's first album and I don't know why I did that, but I got into this thing where that was, that was, you know, when I was putting on my socks or getting my book bag ready, that was, that's what I'd listen to every morning when I'd eat breakfast. I'd listen to those two albums. And so those two albums are kind of, uh, weirdly ingrained together in my cerebral cortex. So, you know, that's, I'm sure there's, there's probably gotta be a monkeys podcast out there. And oh, I'm sure there is. If not, we, we might do it. So, but, well, and that was also one of my favorite brands early on. I mean, it was kind of discovered, certainly discovered via the TV show, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, every song was a hit, you know, and, and, uh, they wrote such pop. I mean, they had obviously people yeah. writing their stuff, but you know, they had, they had that was, you know, and, and it was, MTV before there was MTV and, right. uh, you know, a monkey's TV, that's what you really stand for. You know, MTV mm-hmm. doesn't stand for music anymore at all. But the, uh, you know, it, it's funny that you'd say that because I think, you know, that those were Kiss, Cheap Trick and the Monkeys. You're getting right, you know, right in there with my that's early so music. weird. And Dash of Alice Cooper. Let's, let's open up the album. Thump. Um, that was the sound of the album opening. We have the first track, Hello Kitties. Now, this is kind of bizarre. This is kind of bizarre. Uh, very, very strange. Uh, what do you think that song's about? What is it to you? You know, I always, in, in a way, it's one of those, uh, it sounds like a kind of a song that you would warm up the, you know, that would be your first song of the night. And it was, you know, obviously it sounds like he's welcoming in the crowd, but mm-hmm. it's one of those where it doesn't, it, it's kind of so simple and every instrument kind of builds in. You figure they're testing out the amps. They want to see does everything work. You know, his, his guts are churning this, that, and the other. Maybe, I don't know if it's stage fright coming on stage. But I always thought that song would be perfect for just kind of, okay, before we get into our, our main part of our show here, they're making sure everything works, almost like a sound check song. Well, that's an interesting um, way to look at it. But I always thought that it was about a guy who was going to poison children or a, a child serial killer. You never know. It's a very dark imagery. <laughs> you know, your, your stomach's churning, you know. What you're gonna do when your head starts burning and, and you hear the, the children screaming and playing and stuff like that and there's this weirdo and it's not the last time we'll hear those kids on this album but, uh, right. one of the weird things is that if you're going to like hope to wind up in 16 magazine, I don't think that was ever a dream of the guys, but your two singles off this album 
the first one was Oh Candy, which is a song about someone committing suicide. So that's right up every teenager's, you know, thing. Cindy Brady probably would have listened to that. Um, <laughs> and it was backed with Daddy Should Have Stayed in High School, a song about pedophilia, which we will get into later. Now, look, if, if one of the Bradys is going to listen to the song about suicide, you know it's Jan. Jan, she's okay. Not, yeah, Jan. <laughs> I hear Rick Nielsen's voice in my, my head. head. <laughs> my head. In the voices, yes. Um, and the second single was this one, Hello Kitties, uh, backed with Speak Now or Forever Hold Your Peace, which is really, really strange. And I guess that might have only been in Europe, but still, I, you know, and, and I don't know what song I would have picked to, to be the single, but, uh, it just, it, it's just not the kind of thing that Donnie Osmond would have been doing. <laughs> You know, I, I think that the single, in, and it's the way that it's sequenced on the album was Hot Love. You'd think that was a straight-ahead rocker, you know, and that's yeah, what, le- what led it off when, you re- when they released it, you know, even though, like you said, it was... Back uh, with Cry Cry, maybe. Exactly, and, and Cry Cry is actually one of my favorite songs on the album that really is almost... Well, but but it's almost like a forgotten kind of track. But it is funny that, you know, I mean, to me... Hello Kitties doesn't seem like the logical choice for a single, but uh, no. No, clearly they knew something that I didn't. Children or right. something to them is usually not. <laughs> like I said, the 70s were a weird time. It was such a strange thing. You had Alice Cooper and the Muppets. Sometimes right. Alice Cooper on the Muppets, but you had Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Little House on the Prairie. You had the Village People, and you had uh, Paul Lind, and you had Donnie and Marie, and kiss and it was such a weird crazy time to come up and yet everything seemed to fit even pink lady and jeff but that's a whole other thing it was so strange well when you think about for me when you think about 1977 we're talking 77 think of everything that kiss was putting out think about here cheap trick is starting out and then you had Star Wars, and Star Wars influenced my life for quite a while. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, good to be alive in the 70s, that's for sure. Definitely. Um, Charles Young of Rolling Stone magazine regarded both Hello Kitties and Speak Now or Forever Hold Your Peace among the standout songs of the Cheap Trick album in his review. One of the things is, like, if you watch the, the, the Budokan DVD and, and they do this song, and I don't know what Bunny's doing behind the kit there because it sounds like three drums going at the same time, three three sets of drums going at the same time. And it's like, how does this guy do it? And I had a couple of drummers sit down and watch that, and they're like, I don't know what he's doing exactly. You know, and he's not playing some kind of weird double bass pedal. I mean, that was, I think, always kind of the beauty of it. He had that really stripped-down kit, and it never, you know, he wasn't using all kind of gimmicks. In a, and certainly at that time, I don't think that they had you know, the keyboard player hidden off to the side, filling in all the vocals of, like, you know, what would end up in more of the 80s. But, uh, you know, yeah, he was really uh, getting a lot out of that kit. Uh, This is from Wikipedia, and we know that that is the sum of all truth, wherever it's at. I'm going to read a few things. I I read it on the Internet. It must be true. It's on the Internet. It must be true. (laughs) It says about Hello Kitties, it is a powerful song driven by Bun E. Carlos's pounding the drums, Nielsen playing power chords on the guitar. The sardonic lyrics include several double entendres, and the song has been interpreted in multiple ways, even by members of the band. The most basic meaning is as a hello goodbye story. Nielsen viewed the song as being about real maniacs from nuclear power plants. That's an actual quote. 
<laughs> Another interpretation is that the song expresses a cynical view of education. Cheap Trick drummer Bunny Carlos, who considers this song one of his favorites, interprets the song as telling kids to go out, quote, go out and have fun and go nuts and go completely wild. But that, even deeper, is that the kids need to do this fast before they get older and have ulcers and headaches. Basically, Carlos sums up his view of the song's message as, let's have fun, but better have it now. The song's title is a play on words, since L-O could simply mean hello, or it could mean E-L-O, implying the song borrows ideas from Electric Light Orchestra. I don't know how much truth that is, but I know that the guys are really big into Roy Wood, so, anyway. And the move and things like that. Yeah, all that, yeah. uh, influences yeah that was a weird choice for a single so the band doesn't say it's about guy wanting to kill anybody at the playground but that's the feeling i always got in my weird head so there you go (laughs) (laughs) i like it so it takes us to the next track and another charming little ditty daddy should have stayed in high school now what do you think of that track we hear some of the kids again as it fades into Again, I think that's a song that as you get older and start to realize kind of in the way that, uh, you know, and, and obviously a lot of my comparisons are going to be Kiss, but when you have Christine 16, you know, and uh, I saw you coming out of school that day, you know, you have here, he's, you know, he wishes he was, uh, he's 30, wishes he was 20, and you go, okay, yeah, there's a lot of uh, kind of uh, that sense that there's maybe not good things going on in his mind with these young gals. Yeah, definitely. And I love the bass and how it just flows from the one track into the other. Yeah. I've always thought that this album is almost just like uh you're just sitting back watching a movie. It just it just seems to flow from one thing into the next. Like a great Beatles album or something, you know, it's just just fantastic. Well, but that, you know, the that, first that, that album, bass at the beginning that that is so grungy and so amazing sounding. Kudos well, think, to Mr. Tom Peterson. Go on. And the, the first album, I was going to say, the reason I think a lot of it kind of flows together, they were such a touring, you know, live band, that a lot of these songs they probably were playing and just running right into the next song, you know. And I think a lot of time when you hear these songs that just don't kind of do the fade out at the end, they, they have that fully realized end of the song, it's because they've had to play it live, and you just can't. And that's the way they beat it out in the clubs. So yeah, and and usually, like I said, I think a lot of the time with the first album or first or second album, it's the songs you've been playing, especially back in the day when when most of the bands that were getting record deals, they weren't doing it via instant success on YouTube. Obviously, this is clearly when a band had to really pay their dues in clubs. You booked your shows. You had to get people to come out. And they were do, they were really testing the songs live, and and I think this first album really is that testament to what a great live band Cheap Trick is because these songs were things they had been playing as they were working their way up. So very true, very true. Excellent track. Uh, again, everybody's just firing on all cylinders on this album. So fantastic. And if it seems like I have nothing but glorious praise for this album, it's because that's all I have for it. I'm sorry. There's not a bad song on this album. Yeah. There's not a bad moment on this album. And as I mentioned before, being a big Beatle fan uh, brings us to our next track, which is Taxman, Mr. Thief. Uh, man, just... It, it takes the song Taxman and uses it as a launching pad. Well, it's funny that we're recording this here in mid-April when the yes. Taxman is oh, on everybody's uh, mind. So uh, depending on when you're downloading this, either you're, you're happy that you... Pay your taxes or you owe. <laughs> so you're getting a big refund or not. 
or you're thinking to yourself, gee, I, I better get that paperwork started. So it's, <laughs> you know, and now, now that's a good question. Now you were obviously, the Beatles was one of your first, like, really favorite bands. When you hear a band that clearly so deliberately pulling from a, another song, did you think of it as, well, oh, they're ripping off the Beatles? Or no, I thought it was damn Beatles? cool. Yeah. I thought it was damn cool, and it is damn cool. It's definitely the Beatles. I mean, that's, this is one where I th- a lot of time they get that, that moniker, oh, they're so Beatle influenced. This is one of the songs where you really point to that. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that? Because we'll go to that Elvis homage and cry, cry, if not the next Yeah, time. you know what? Let's do that. You'll I be mean, so lonely, baby. Okay. Cry, cry, I think is one of those great forgotten cheap trick songs in the sense that to me, it could be on any album or be played at any time, and it would sound fresh and wonderful and great. You know, and I, I agree. I think, like I said earlier in the show, this I almost wanted to jump right to it, and it really, that chorus on there is so catchy. It's one of those that sticks in your head that, you know, and a lot of time I think, and again, it goes back to everything we kind of always talk about is, these are the songs that have been in your head for decades at this mm-hmm. point. You know, and, and you've grown up always, you know, when, when there's a song in your head that it was either, you know, a Kiss song or, or a Cheat Trick song or whatever, that this is one of those songs. I think it's so catchy. I'm surprised it's not something that you hear them pull out. You know, you, I wonder, if, is this one where, you, you know, the people who really want to be on the inside of Cheat Trick yell it out when the... You know, they go to the show in the cheap trick cruise or whatever. But the, uh, you know, it's it's one of those uh, very, like you said, I think if they put put that out today, it would still work. I always thought that this song could have fit really well on Found All the Parts. Right. You know, yeah, I think it's 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 funny, especially when you look at some of the songs they cut off. Like obviously we. At the time, I didn't know it, but I mean, when you when you got the reissue or you started reading about it later, and you realize now what they're cutting off the album, they're keeping this one, and you'd, you'd say to yourself, that's one that really could have fit, you know, just about any time period mm-hmm. for the band, I think. And I think it's really because it's almost two different songs. You have the verses are kind of more kind of edgy and rocky, but when it hits that that uh, chorus, it's it's just incredible. Right. Well, it it kind of reminds me off of uh, the found all the parts can't hold on track, which is really bluesy. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I can hear that. Yeah, it it kind of has some of that kind of thing going on with it. Great yeah. track. Just Love it. fantastic, fantastic stuff. And then uh, Oh Candy, which was used pretty well in uh, the '70s show when right. they had that crazy chick Candy on it. <laughs> but um, again, another great Beatle callback in this. That, that you know, just just great, great stuff. Excellent. I love this song, Pop Perfection. And again, that's like you know. And I refer. I think I referred to it earlier. But it's one of those that when you're little, you don't necessarily maybe you know as a ten or eleven year old get quite as hip um, you know to what he's singing. But about you know, and the pain obviously that was that was associated with the song. That you know maybe later and and again it comes to having lived with these songs for our whole lives is that it really uh, you know speaks to different things and certainly the pain that was that was in their mind at the time about it. According to Wikipedia and other things I've read, Oh Candy is about a photographer friend of the band Marshall Mintz, A.K.A. M and M, who committed suicide, and that's all I know about it. 
Well, there you go. Now, I know more about it than I did a minute ago, and uh, maybe some of our listeners do, too. That's all good, man. It's all good. Um, now, a song I'm surprised wasn't a single, Hot Love. And why is he screaming about Steven Tyler at the end? Does he? No, you got to go back to your record. Turn it okay. way up as the right. song is fading out. Yeah. Yeah. And the, well, the first part, you can't tell what he says, but then it sounds like he says something about Steven Tyler. And this, again, this is one of those that when, as you listen to it repeatedly, 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 and you'd be listening to it at that one time where maybe, you know, nobody was else in the house and you could crank it way up. And if it's going out, it's... What was that? I remember hearing that, and and he said, no "I swear it's something, it's something." Awesome. Stephen Tyler. Um, the the first part you can't tell what it is, but I almost every time I heard that, I I think it's Rick, and I wonder if it's something that's coming through the pickup mics on you know of his guitar. guitar, and because it's it's very low, you got to really mm-hmm. kind of crank it up. But it's if anybody you know, obviously if anybody knows for sure, it's like what are the kids saying in God of Thunder? Same thing. What's he screaming about Stephen yeah. Tyler? Maybe I, I th- at least that's what I think. Well, you mentioned Steven Tyler. The album was produced by Jack Douglas, who uh, was popular for uh, working with Aerosmith. So who knows, you know? But uh, Jack Douglas also later uh, worked on the with the band on "Found All the Parts" and uh, "Standing on the Edge," and they did the recorded version of "Surrender" uh, and a few tracks on Rockford. So that's kind of the history of Jack Douglas working with the band. I'd, I'd welcome him working with the band again. Well, you know, maybe I always, I always thought it was Rick screaming that as the as it faded out because it just sounds like Rick. Mm-hmm. But maybe it's Jack Douglas saying, "Oh, that damn Steven Tyler." I don't know. You know, he was working with him. So, well, you say it sounds like Rick. Might be Robin. Might be Rick. The thing is, is that Rick can sound like Robin. And you know what? There's a couple of those demos. What is it? Um. And now, world's greatest lover. World's greatest lover that has Rick singing. I think Which that's is what you really, He does a beautiful. Yeah. Thing. But I almost feel like, as weird as this might sound to anybody, that Robin was Rick's voice, uh, and I think that Rick could have been a great lead singer in just about any band. But when you have a Robin Zander at your disposal. You, you know, background vocals work. <laughs> so you know, and and isn't it funny when you think about that here? Because Rick, especially being that he wrote most of the songs, I mean, really wrote pretty much the bulk of the catalog, could have been the singer and the the main force, and it could have been the Rick Nielsen project. But but like you said, can you imagine your luck when you look over and you think to yourself, "Hey, that's the singer in my band." You know, right. and the, that's my bass player, and that's my guitarist, and that's my drummer, and. Right. That is awesome. What a great convergence of talent. Just amazing, amazing stuff. The thing about Hot Love is it just percolates and it doesn't stop. It's like, it's like a train going off a track. The whole thing. It just, it, it cooks. It, it's, it's like the eggs are burning on the stove. You gotta get out there fast. You know what I mean? It, it just crackles with energy. It's amazing stuff. Well, and it's funny that, you know, what we were talking about, the uh, the difference between the original release and then obviously what they claim they wanted to have as the the uh, actual, you know, song listing. This is the first song on the album. And, you know, I, I always thought Hot Love was a great way to open the album because it is such a rocker and such a fierce kind of a track that really, I think, would, really did work as the opener of the album. Mm-hmm. 
So which was your side one, side A thing? Which did you start the album off with? You know what? To me, I always, I always thought of Hot Love, Speak Now, He's a Whore. You know, that side was, was side one. You know, and it's like, uh, and it was probably the side that, that I almost listened to the most. Be, I don't know, you know, it's funny when you think about it in terms of side one and side two and, and, you know, like I said with Budokan, side two of Budokan, I've listened to over and over and over as side two. Those like five songs, you know, mm-hmm. over and over and over and over. And, um, I think it's funny. I think if, if Cry Cry had been on the other side of my album, I don't think I ever might have even turned it over. Cause that's probably <laughs> my favorite song on the other side. But, but these songs, you know, and I think Hot Love and, and, and even Speak Now, it's just all good songs. Like you said, I mean, we can kind of go on about, wow, this is the greatest album. And there's somebody going, well, you know, you have to have a diverse amount of thinking means you have to hate something. I don't. I don't hate a damn thing on this album. <laughs> as far as the track listing, uh, I guess the record company wanted it one way and Cheap Trick wanted it another way. When the when the band performed the entire debut album at the Metro Chicago on May 1st, 1998, they played the album in the, their intended order, starting with Hello Kitty. The concert was recorded. Parts of it contributed to the live album Music for Hangovers. Which is a fantastic set. And I love the artwork. Uh, it's got a picture, the, the nude chick sitting on a bar stool, music right. for hangovers, like their asses are hanging over the edge of the bar stool, so. That's some great sense of humor there. Or horrible sexism, one or the other. <laughs> one or the other. Yeah. Let's go with good humor. Works for me. Now, uh, speak now or forever hold your peace. Uh, the only song not written by the band. Terry Reed wrote it. He's an English music. Musician, not magician, but musician. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of a strange pick. I would have thought the band had wrote this. You know, and, and that's the funny thing. I mean, at the time, you know, you would look at the album and you'd see the different names and, and, you know, I didn't really necessarily do, like, again, do any kind of research who he was or anything. But this one, I think, and I, and I might have said it earlier when we were talking about it, but to me, this song really, shows how they build these songs. You start off with that bass, and it's, again, this, such a distinctive sound from Tom Peterson, and then Rick kind of comes in, and it's that Rick Nielsen guitar sound that even on this first album are right there. And I think, you know, and have the way they build into the songs, there you go. It's something that has been done over and over and over, and it's right here on, the you know, what was, for me, the second song of the album. <sighs> Not, not, not many albums make me sigh. This album <laughs> makes me sigh. Great track, great track. I would not have thought that Cheap Trick did not write this song. It fits so perfectly on the album. It's, they definitely, uh, made it their own. Absolutely. Let's see. The American rock group Cheap Trick recorded Reed Speak Now for their debut album. Also in 73, the American rock group Ario Speedwagon recorded Reed's Without Expressions, Don't Be the Man for their Riding the Storm Out album. So, there you go. Gonna have to try to find the original version of it.
This is great. That's fantastic. There's a bit of Terry Reed's original version, and it sounds pretty damn good. That's a good choice for a cover uh, song. So thank you, Cheap Trick, for turning us on to that. And uh, if you're interested, you can go buy that on Amazon, uh, the MP3 thing, and uh, enjoy. It's cool hearing that. I, I appreciate the Cheap Trick version even more, though, now. Okay, so let's go to a song that they shot a video for. But it it wasn't a single. He's a whore. You know, and, and I, that's another one I probably think as would have been a good single because it's you remember that chorus so much. It's very kind of repetitive and catchy. And, uh, you know, even when I made the joke earlier, have you seen her face? She's got this face that can stop the clock. It, it's imagery that sticks with you. And, uh, you know, but like you said, at the time, they were being edgy. You know, it's, uh, you know, you, you think of uh, what might be going on in this song. And, uh, you know, it's... Uh, well, even in the in the video, it's weird because you see Rick being Rick, of course, and he uh, he's doing all of his things and he's very animated and he's almost accusing Robin of being a whore who stands there swaying back and forth. It's almost like a little mini musical going on back and forth. And I love how uh, Rick will reach out to him every so often, but he just can't grab him for whatever reason. Uh, it's really, really strange video, and I love it. It's fantastic. Um, this song was covered by a band called Big Black, and uh, I think it was from their songs, uh, from their album "Songs About Fucking." Now, there's a <laughs> there's a real commercial title, so and that'll get on the radio real quick. Here we have songs about wah wah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, the uh, single. I can't believe they made a single pressing of it, but uh, it it had the big black, uh, the, the the band's name Big Black in a cheap trick like logo from 1987. So, and uh, let's uh, bop into that wonderful Wikipedia thing again uh, about he's a whore. It says the genesis of the song came from Nielsen coming up with the title and liking the idea and building the song around it. He liked the fact that the phrase he's a whore is not as obvious as the title as if the title was she's a whore and that the song about a gigolo involves a sense of role reversal. The lyrics imply that the central character was an unattractive but wealthy woman. However, according to Nielsen, the song is not just about sex. Nielsen stated that whoring means so many different things. It doesn't just mean having sex, but someone who does anything for money. Nielsen further, I feel weird calling him Nielsen. Rick Nielsen further (laughs) noted that the song encompasses radio stations and people who would do anything for money. And indeed, the lyrics include the line, I'm a whore, I'll do anything for money. And this is further emphasized when the lead singer, Robin Zander, sings I'm a whore, and Nielsen sings his reply, he'll do anything for money. Motley Crue's uh, Vince Neil also covered the track on his 2010 album Tattoos and Tequila. What you know, I think say? that's one that really I think shows off one of the secret weapons of Cheap Trick has always been Robin Zander's voice. I think is one of the greatest of rock and roll. 
I you agree. know, because when you hear when you hear somebody else do it, you know, like I know Anthrax just did a copy of or a cover of Big Eyes, mm-hmm. and it, and I heard it on uh, I think it was um, some, one of the serious one of the um, rock channels. Ozzy's Boneyard had it. Okay. And she's just, she's talking it up. Okay, we're gonna have this is Anthrax's cover. And you're thinking, okay, this is gonna be good, but you know, when it gets to the vocal, it's not gonna make it. But you know, it's actually pretty good. But the, uh, you know, I think that's one of the things with Cheap Trick. Robin's voice is very distinctive. You don't really hear a lot of bands with the singer that sounds like Robin. Can you even come up with a like think in your mind? Is there a band that you go, oh, they kind of sound? He sounds like Robin Zander. Well, there was a. a group called the toadies and they had a possum kingdom right yeah poss- that's that song to me sounds like cheap trick that, that song could have like come kids. off of woke up with a monster to me make up your mind make up your mind and i'll promise you i will treat you well my sweet angel so help me jesus I was thinking of. Is there another one? <laughs> um, well, John Lennon, but you know, again, and, and it's it's not just the ability to sound like Robin Zander, but which Robin Zander? Because right. he's got his growl and he's got his mid range and he's got those angelic highs. It's just the guy can do just about anything. He really is the all purpose singer in a band. And I don't think that, like for example, as much of a Kiss fan as I am, there I've I've known people that for example, didn't like uh, Paul Stanley's voice, just for whatever reason. You know, there's just singers you don't like the voice of, like, I like Sticks, for example, but Dennis DeYoung's voice, as much as I enjoy their music, if I were to hear too much of his voice at one time, it would drive me nuts, you know. Uh, he's got a great voice, don't get me wrong, but it was they were smart to have different vocalists in the band at the same time. Absolutely. But I think Robin's voice is incredibly pleasant no matter which version of his voice he uses. But a great song, fun video. I don't think there's anything that can be said that uh, is any worse, which brings me to one of, another highlight of the album. Like I said, every track's a highlight. And, and it's funny when you I have I was listening to it in the car this week and I actually had just the CD the one that they had put out where everything's in the different order and and that's so it's track number four and you, the funny thing with that is you know you're, you're rocking and rocking and rocking and all of a sudden it's like wow it slows right down it's one of those now luckily if you're here on the east coast around the Philadelphia area where I am this week the weather was gorgeous the windows were down the music was up. 
and we had been talking about doing this. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to go back and really listen to a bunch of cheap tricks. And I'm just sitting at the stoplight when this came on, and you just it was perfect for the minute. Oh, boy, that sounds really good. And uh, But, you know, do you ever get thrown off in a way when you start off with an album that's rocker, 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 and then slows down the ballad? And we're going to go along and be real nice. And <laughs> right. But to me, this doesn't hit that. To me, this is it's, it's actually the album's been such a frenetic pace at this point that you need this. I remember my, my memories of this song. I remember just being transported away. Even as like a kid of 15 or whatever, it's just, this was such an amazingly beautiful song. This is the kind of song that you could just, those great albums that came out, whether it's Pink Floyd, you know, The Wall or, or Dream Police or whatever, you'd put those albums on and you'd get away from your parents, you'd get away from school, you'd get away from anything you needed to. Those songs were like a, a transport. They, they would get you high themselves, and this song always kind of got me high in that sense. I remember just laying on the bed and just listening to the beauty of it. It would just transport me away. Yeah, I think it's one of those songs you do remember certain places that you were when you heard it, or because it, I think because it's such a distinctive track on the album, because it is so kind of laid back and everything else, uh, frenetic. That was a good word. I like that. It's a big word like gymnasium. But the, of course, uh, yes. you know, <laughs> you know, No it, extra it, charge for that, by the way. <laughs> you know, because it uh, it was so different on the album, it's one of those that really st- sets itself apart because the rest of it is just rocking, rocking, and then you had this one kind of just, uh, you know, a little more mellow. And, yeah, like you said, it really is something that does take you in a different place. If there was one band that I'd like to hear cover this, I'd like to hear the Red Hot Chili Peppers cover this. Never been a big Chili Peppers fan myself. But, but uh, think about it. They have uh, Flea, who is, like, amazing on bass. I think he could do a great job of it. And I think that they – the Red Hot Chili Peppers, as weird as this is going to sound, when I hear their music, it, it's like when I hear the Beach Boys music. I think of summer with, with both of those bands. You know, I think because maybe where you were at the time, you know, but I don't know that, I mean, this is going to be a whole other topic, but that was, to me, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, everybody's playing a solo at once. I just could never get into them. You know, it's just, that's just the way it sounds to me. And, uh, you know, it's, it was one of those bands that I think came along at the time where, and certainly for the eighties for me and people can say what they want, but I was a, I was a hair metal guy. And uh, kind of everything outside they of that. They were the enemy. You know, yeah, they were something different, right, and right, I just didn't right. dig it. And it was just, uh, you know, it, and that's for somebody on a Red Hot Chili Peppers podcast is going, oh, that Matt Porter, yeah, right, blah, 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 blah. That guy but needs hey, to yeah. shut his pie hole. But, uh, <laughs> you know, and it's weird you mentioned the hair metal. Cheap Trick was fit right well into that. You know, and that's, I think, the same with... with um, I, I mean, they, they were accepted by that community, you know what I mean? Well, you know, I think has always straddled many, many forms of music and many groups. Go on, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Well, I was going to say, I think, in, and we obviously, you know, our first connection was really on Kiss podcast, but I think Kiss and Cheap Trick, you know, one of the topics that we talk about a lot, can you be a fan depending on when you got into them and things like that, but I think because we were getting into this stuff in the 70s, they, to me, and I'm going to say this, certainly Cheap Trick and Kiss were like the bands that everybody else was now wanting to be. And, I mean, maybe it's because that's what I discovered first. But, I mean, through 
kiss and chew trick, you start to discover bands like Y&T or, you know, certainly ACDC, things like that. Cause, but, but I was into rock because of kiss and chew trick. And then by the time you get into the 80s, where now, you know, 83, 84, 85, everything is, you know, going to be a glam band or all that. It's, they seem, always seem like the children of kiss and chew trick because you had these, Obviously, the the ballad became the standard. It's how half these bands got their you know their foothold was every rose has its thorn or things like that. Be, you know, home sweet home. And you'd think of Cheap Trick doing something like Mandicello, and you'd say to yourself, okay, it's that same formula. And and it was always you know and again it goes back to my love of Kiss, but Kiss was like the ones that started all. Now somebody's going, oh well, I think it was Led Zeppelin or blah 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 blah. But you know. I think it's why when it got into that stuff in the 80s, to me it was such a natural progression because it started with Kiss and Cheap Trick, in my mind. Excellent. And that brings us to our next song, The Ballad of TV Violence. I'm not the only boy. <laughs> Robin going berserk. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, this is one, now you talk about being transported away. This one I always think of... Um, there's times you listen to it, it's like, oh, come on, Robin, <laughs> calm down, it'll be all right. You know, if you're in your car with this thing cranked up, he's spazzing out. <laughs> well, the weird thing is, is that, like, you, again, I don't mean to talk about Kiss so much, but you look at Kiss as a concept, and Kiss never did anything as dangerous as anything on this album, lyrically. I think it's, they were always the ones they wanted to be in control of everything. You know, right. most rock bands, they want to be the one who's in control, whereas specifically as this song is an example, he's going out of his mind. You know, it's right. like, and that, that's, I think, howling. He is just going crazy. Well, to me, it's it's got a psycho thing going on in it. Like, it's, right. I, I was the only boy... I'm not the only boy. So you got that juxtaposition of, uh, you know, when I was your only boy, mommy, I was the only thing that mattered, and now I'm not the only boy. And is he talking to his girlfriend? Is he talking to his mom? Who's he talking to? You know what I mean? And, but it's definitely someone who's come unhinged, and there's going to be some nasty stuff that's probably going to happen. Right. So excellent end to an excellent album. We're, we're going to talk about the extra tracks you got track 11, which is Love and Money, which was an outtake. To me, not a strong song. Kind of glad it didn't make the original album. Any thoughts? You know, I like the song. I mean, it's funny. Those, these couple that were bonus songs, we got them on that Sex America Cheap Trick box set. To hear them here and realize that they could have been on that first album, I, I like it. You know, it's, it's a good song. And this uh, brings us to track 12. I want you to want me the early version. A little too ragtimey for me. You know, it's funny because the version that ended up on um, being what on it was on uh, Heaven Tonight, right? It's the, when we first see. I always think I want you to want me off Budokan, but right. that heavier version, the heavier version of the song. You wonder if the heavier version of I Want You to Want Me had been on this first album. To me, that's the logical choice of the single that that heavy version and would that have had the same kind of impact as a first single as it did then obviously kind of i think launching their career by the time it came out on the budokan album yeah well you know who who knows but uh not to me nothing beats the budokan version now that's i want to like i said i want to hear from the the real hardcore cheap trick fans 
do they consider that like the uh, the Kiss equivalent of Rock and Roll Night? Where well, you, you, yeah, I'm a, you're a cheap trick fan. Your favorite song is "I Want You to Want Me." You know, is that you know because that's clear that's my favorite song. But is that known as among hardcore fans of Cheap Trick as the geeky pick? Well, I'm sure that there's some people, or that Surrender <laughs> would be the geeky pick. You know, right, right. But uh, damn, it's just a damn perfect song. The, whether you, you're tired of it or whatever, it just means you've been to too many shows, maybe. I don't know. But to me, it's like complaining about ice cream. Shut up and enjoy. So let's go to track 13, Look Out, the previously you know, that's studio just, version. Well, it's funny that it ended up, you know, that that was also intended for this first album. And, again, that was one that I knew certainly from the Budokan album. You know, it was track live, track three on the Budokan album. Mm-hmm. And... uh I always loved it, and then for years, you know, you couldn't find it other than that. They're like, well, what album was this on? And I mean, obviously, that was, you know, you're trying to track these things down. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I didn't know, I mean, certainly we didn't have the ability, oh, let's Google, oh, that's an unreleased track. And, you know, but uh, I love that song. I, you know, it's something that I'm, again, I'm surprised that it would get cut. And then clearly they're still doing it in, um, you know, in the shows because it ended up on Budokan. Right, right, right. Well, when you only have so many uh, albums to pick from, you know. Right. Plus, that's one hell of a set list. Right. Now, a song that I think could have worked very well on the first album is track 14, You're All Talk. I think that would have worked very well, the previously unreleased studio version. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, same thing. Again, it's it's one of those where you go, wow, they must have really been having to dig through it when they said, well, now I think we'll leave this one off because that is, yeah, that's a really, a, it's a great song. Very cool. And the last track, track 15, I dig Go-Go Girls. Not a fave. Not one that you necessarily go right to still. (laughs) But but you know what? It was one that I didn't hear until later. You know, that was one. I think I finally got this on a a bootleg, but years later. And and then when they put them out on the reissue by 98, it was a good copy. But that wasn't one that I really had a very good copy of until, you know, really, like you said, like these reissues came out. Very good, very good. Well, that's the first Cheap Trick album and the re-released version of it as well. So, And I also want to stress while we're talking about the first album how truly evil Rick Nielsen was. I mean, if you watch like the Night Gallery clips and stuff like that, he looks completely insane. I mean, (laughs) Gene Simmons has nothing on him, you know what I mean? (laughs) Is there anything you'd like to say in closing about this album? Again, and we've kind of said it over and over, I don't think there's a bad moment on this album. Uh, it, it definitely reminds me of, you know, certainly late 70s, early 80s as we were discovering Cheap Trick. And uh, a lot of the stuff, I mean, certainly a lot of the things that I talk about are things that are, are heavily coded in my own nostalgia, so to speak. And, uh, you know, when you when you think about that time period and these songs that and I, I've said that a couple times we've we've grown up with these songs in our head and uh, just a great album these first bunch of cheap trick albums really just excellent and um, this one certainly you know has has stood up as as something that really when you say yeah I'm a cheap trick fan this is a good one to point to oh definitely uh, here's the review from Charles M Young printed in Rolling Stone magazine back in May fifth nineteen seventy seven. These guys play rock and roll like Vince Lombardi coached football. Heavy emphasis on basics with a strain of demented violence to keep the opposition intimidated. The closest musical analogy is The Who. 
who have always sounded like the inmates of Bedlam on their best stuff. Cheap Trick not only sounds like their attendant forgot to lock their cages, they look like it, too. <laughs> Half the fun of the album is staring at the pictures on the back and wondering if lead guitarist Rick Nielsen really has fire ants in his underwear and how Boris Karloff made it Henry, with Henry Kissinger with Adolf Hitler to come up with drummer Bunny Carlos. That's kind of unfair. <laughs> Bunny's a lot better than that. Yeah. Boris Karloff, Kissinger, and Hitler? Come on. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. Rick Nielsen, whom producer Jack Douglas has described as the best songwriter he has, has ever worked with, plays one mean Stratocaster. He has a good ear for a riff and a lack of qualms about beating it to death when the occasion demands, and the technical competence to mess around when tedium threatens. What vocalist Robin Zander lacks in range, he more than makes up in emotion. Boo. Check out the singing on Taxman Mr. Thief and tell me tell me anyone has been more pissed off since John Lennon was primaled. Tom Peterson on bass so intentively that the instrument is a, almost a second lead. On a spectrum from Charlie Watts' mantra rhythm to Keith Moon Chaos, Carlos stands slightly closer to Watts. Someone has to keep the band from falling entirely into the void. Their lyrics run the gamut of lust, confusion, misogyny, growing out of rejection, and anti-authoritarian sentiments about school, all with an energy of wit that has distinguished the best band since rock began. Standout songs to my ears are Hello Kitties, Speak Now or Forever Hold Your Peace, and the aforementioned Taxman. Catch them before Nurse Ratchet slices open their frontal lobes. So, <laughs> That's a pretty good review. Uh, yeah. Saying that Robin Zander lacks in range is, come on, guy. But then again, this was, you know, he was just, it was the 77. It wasn't now looking back on his great catalog and seeing what all he was capable of. So, right. thank you, Charles M. Young and Rolling Stone. So anyway, that's the first Cheap Trick album, and this is the first uh, episode of our podcast. Hopefully you like it, and if not, let us know. We're setting up a Facebook page, so stop by and leave kind or nasty comments, and uh, we have a little treat for you. We have a friend named Jody Have Not. He has a KISS podcast called Strange Ways. It's one of the most bizarre, surrealistic things you'll ever listen to in your life if you stumble across it. Him and a few. This show is great. Yeah, it's it's great, but it's yeah, just surreal. I'm a, I'm a big fan. Yeah, but it just blows my mind. You're sitting there listening to them. They have all these sound effects going on all the time, and it all relates to what they're talking about. It must take forever to edit that thing, but this is their version of a cheap trick song. And here's the personnel: Jody Have Not on guitar and drums, Clinton Harris on vocals, and D Rock on bass. I don't know if D Rock has a real name, but Anyway, what you got, D-Rock? Yeah, this is the uh, Strange Ways crew doing Cheap Trick's wonderful song, Reach Out. So we'll close out the show with that.
So that's our show. We hope you like it. Uh, hopefully we'll do more. Uh, let us know what you think of it. And uh, Matt, anything you'd like to say? Thank you for listening. All right. We'll see you, Wookie. And uh, God bless <laughs> and keep cheap tricking. All right. We'll see you. Thanks, Ken. All right. Bye. And that's our show. Trick Chat is an online nonprofit audio fanzine made by fans for fans. Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to Cheap Trick or any of their members past or present. If you hear anything you like from the band, go on Amazon or iTunes to buy it. If you enjoyed this show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying keep cheap trickin'. Next time, slap me. Um... (laughs)